listeners, and welcome to another episode of In With The Old. We are a podcast devoted to dispelling myths, building appreciation for God's Word, and rediscovering the Old Testament for the life of faith. We are now into the heart of the book of Ruth as we continue, uh, particularly looking at Naomi as a character. Today, we're going to be focusing on Ruth as a character in Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 through 22. Next time, we're going to hit Boaz and the way that he's presented. Uh, But I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Brian Koning. Uh, Dr. Brian, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm absolutely loving going through Ruth. It's one of my favorite books. I think we've said it uh, a couple times like in the lead up to this, but... Uh, it's just a, such a fascinating, intricate story. I love looking at the characters. This is a great place to see that these are are real people <laughs> dealing yeah. with real world events, real trauma, real pain, real suffering, but finding real love and real joy. So I've been loving doing this, Tim. It's doubly fun because I get to do it with you. So yeah. I'm excited to kind of finish up chapter one already uh, to, in today's episode. Yeah, well, it's it's a gripping narrative, and uh, and so let's yeah. dive into it. We've been reading through verse by verse uh, to this point. We've seen uh, Elimelech and his sons in Moab. They've of course died. Naomi is returning. She's basically told her daughters-in-law to leave to return to their peoples. Uh, but as we're going to see, Ruth refuses to do so, and that brings us to Ruth chapter one, verses sixteen through twenty-two. Reading it from the the Christian Standard Bible. Here's what it says. But Ruth replied. Don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die and there will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. And when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. And the two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival. And the local women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, she answered. For the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the Moabitess, and they arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And and there we have it. So this, uh, again, we're referring to this as the characterization of Ruth. This is where we see really for the first time Ruth's character traits coming out. And again, this comes out through dialogue. We see this incredibly impressive statement from Ruth, in a sense, a a sort of loving rebuke to her mother-in-law saying, I will go with you. So Mm -hmm. Brian, as as we look at verse 16, what do you make of Ruth's response? What are some features in the text that you see? Well, so maybe going off like we did last time, Tim, uh, Mm -hmm. and using the alliteration pattern again. I think we see three key characteristics that are developed about Ruth in this passage. Uh And and so the first one we're going to say is that she is selfless. I think we highlighted last time that there's a lot of, there's a lot for Ruth to lose. She's a young woman. Uh, We're going to gather, I think that she's somewhat attractive from this from this book rather. Mm -hmm. Um, She had many prospects if she could go back home. But mm-hmm. instead of maybe choosing the safe path, the sure path, she clings to Naomi, right? Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful plea. Don't plead with me to abandon you or to return or not to follow. Wherever yeah. you go, I will go, right? It's it's a beautiful speech. 
Uh, and at least in my mind, it's been suggested, right? This feels like a play. Couldn't you imagine the scene on the stage, right? This Ooh. beautiful talk of, uh, of clinging your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. So mm -hmm. we see this kind of beautiful abandonment of self, of, of all the expectations she could get. Because her sister-in-law, Orpa, has returned. But for Ruth to make this choice means she's abandoning her people, she's abandoning her country, she's abandoning her God, and mm -hmm. instead picking something new. It's a truly powerful statement, I think, uh, coming out of this passage. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I, I totally agree with you. And even, even the way that verse 16 and 17 is set up, it's very interesting, Brian, as I was looking at this, um, the, the verb forms actually emphasize something particular in verse 16. Uh, mm -hmm. When she says, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow, she says, for wherever you go, I will go. And then wherever you live, I will live. But then the verb form changes when it says your people will be my people. Now, the CSB that we're reading actually translate that, translates that in the future tense in English, right? Mm -hmm. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. But actually in the Hebrew, that's a verbless clause. Um, so yeah. for our listeners, uh, it's, it goes from the imperfect in Hebrew, which is often translated into future tense in English. It goes to a verbless clause, and then it goes back to the imperfect tense. Now, there's a, a lot of debate because some people say, well, uh, just because there's no verb doesn't mean we shouldn't translate it the same way, which is why the English translators choose perfect tense or uh, the future tense. But here's the point. Even in the Hebrew text, the fact that it's written differently shows its emphasis. Uh, so I'm not saying that our translation is inaccurate. I'm just saying that in, in Hebrew, what is highlighted in Ruth's speech, that in, in, a, in a sense, the climax of her speech is when she says to Naomi, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. So it's, it's not just, I'll live where you live, I'll be buried where you're buried. Um, it's no, I am now clinging to you in the sense of, I want to become a part of your people and your God will now be my God, um, which is incredible, right? This, this is the abandonment of her gods for the God of Israel. And of course, as it develops, we see this uh, in the fact that Ruth invokes the name, the covenant name of the God of Israel. So she's selfless, but also uh, to continue the alliteration, she's also stubborn and stubborn in the best way. She refuses to be daunted. She, she looks at Naomi and she says, absolutely not. And by the way, I, I, this is the way I think of it, Brian. It's almost like Ruth trusts in the God of Israel more than Naomi trusts in her own God, hmm. uh, which is incredibly telling to me as we see the, the character of Ruth come forth. Um, so what, what are some things that you see here, Brian? Well, yeah, I find it quite interesting. As you said, you, you drop down to the end of verse 16 and you uh -huh. get the beautiful, uh, make Ami, uh, your people, my people. Uh, and mm -hmm. then she says, your God, my God, like there's, there's no verb between it. It's quite, uh, striking. But then mm -hmm. in verse 17, I think we need to highlight that she does call in the divine name. Yes. May Yahweh punish me and do so ever so severely. Uh, it's quite fascinating, right? Naomi has called upon God. Uh, mm -hmm. by name before but she explicitly had told the orpa and ruth to both go back to their gods right but here we see this kind of uh rejecting of that and i think that does lead us tim to our second s uh for <laughs> ruth is that she's somewhat stubborn um yeah. and, and there's a great deal of humor 
So you get this beautiful speech, right? That uh, Ruth is going to be clinging to Naomi. Verse 18, when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go, she stopped talking. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and, and I know you had a note here, and I agree with it. This reads as a bit of humor. Uh, this is a wink and a nod. Have you ever had yeah. that person that you're like, you try to debate it, but at some point you just realize, nope, it's done. They made up their mind. Yep. Uh, it's going to happen. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I think we get that about Ruth. She is someone that has gumption. Uh, she has determination. Yes. She's stubborn. That's going yes. to play out, by the way, later, as she's going to take some outside of the normal bounds, shall we say, actions for what she believes is the right thing. And we mm -hmm. see that set up here. She is someone that when she has made up her mind, will commit to it and commit yeah. to it uh, extremely. So I, I, I think there's a little humor in this text, um, but I think it's an important that we kind of introduce this is who she is. Uh, yeah. and, and with that, we then begin moving back to the city of Bethlehem. Yeah. And here we, we've mentioned back in week one, Tim, that names matter. Here mm -hmm. we get an interesting name change that isn't a name change. And I'll explain that in a moment. Uh, mm -hmm. But Naomi says, call me Mara, mm -hmm. as she's greeted by her townsfolk. Uh, Tim, what does Mara mean compared to Naomi? Yeah, so the, the name Naomi means something like pleasant, whereas mm -hmm. Mara means bitter. Uh, and so Naomi is essentially saying, I'm not the same person who I was when I left. Uh, don't call me Naomi because my life cannot in any way be considered pleasant. Uh, right. Instead, I see myself as so fundamentally different. Call me Mara. Call me by a different name. And, and importantly, she, she lays the blame uh, at the feet of God, right? Mm -hmm. God's hand is against me. And, and it's really emphatic because she says it twice, right? In verse 20, verse 21, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara for the almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord's brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has opposed me and the almighty has afflicted me? Well, um, and on that verse 21 too, uh, the CSB mm -hmm. does read opposed, but if you compare it to the Septuagint, Mm -hmm. uh, the Vulgate, mm -hmm. some of our other original language translations, right? Um, she says humiliated there, mm -hmm. right? This is a very strong, as you were saying, challenge uh, uh, back to Yahweh. Yeah, yeah. And so it, she sees her life as over as she knew it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think, you know, when we think of Naomi, th there's, there's this interesting interplay, right? Because she comes back and, and it's almost, uh, at least I read it this way, and I'm interested to hear what you think, Brian. It's almost like she's getting ahead of the punches. You know, mm. she knows how she's going to be perceived. She knows that uh, she is going to be accounted as cursed by God in some way. Um, and so she, she takes it. She says, all right, before you can humiliate me, I'm going to humiliate myself. I am bitter because God's hand has been against me. And, and in a sense, I, I said earlier, a little bit tongue in cheek that she blamed God. Mm. It's not that I think she was saying that God was being unjust and like, Job, I've got a case oh, yeah, against no. you. I, I think this was her embracing this new identity <laughs> and essentially saying to the people who had known her, uh, presumably from her childhood, I know what you all think, uh, call me Mara and, and basically, um, I'm embracing the shame as part of my new identity. I agree. And I think that's something kind of uh, fun seems like the weird word to put alongside shame. 
but there's an yeah. interesting point here. She's embracing this. She's she's abasing herself as she comes yes. back, uh, getting yeah. ahead of the punches. I like you saying that. Mm-hmm. But as I said, this is a name change that isn't a change because mm-hmm. she has never called Mara anywhere mm-hmm. in the story. And I think mm-hmm. that sets up a kind of interesting point. Naomi's view of herself and her own shame is not how the story views her. Mm-hmm. The story has a grander view, a broader view. It has the yeah. view of God with his mercy. God yeah. continues to call her, and the the writer of this book continues to call her Naomi. Uh, yeah. and, and so I think there's some yeah. interesting interplay here that sometimes we are our own worst critics. right? Mm-hmm. There are those that you go, okay, you probably need to be much more aware of your sin. But there are some people that I think have such a preoccupation with how low they are they don't see how much God loves them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here we have some interesting that Naomi views herself as Mara. And yet every character, by the way, is also going to keep calling her Naomi throughout yeah. the rest of the story. Um, yeah. So just, just kind of an interesting interplay there. Uh, and then in the last verse of chapter one, we have the full reversal uh, of mm-hmm. the story from the first part. But we also see the last element, the last S for Ruth. And that yes. is, she has a stigma. Yeah. She's called Ruth the Moabitess. Uh, and she is called that throughout the story. Mm-hmm. Um, Tim, we won't, don't need to like rehearse everything that we said back in the overview. Uh, but just quickly, some things about the Moabites, right? They are related way back in Abraham Lot uh, to mm-hmm. Israel, but they have opposed Israel to this point. Especially yeah. Moabite women are responsible in the cursing of Israel or bringing curses upon themselves back in the book of Numbers. Um, this is meant to be a stigma, is it not, that she's called Ruth the Moabitess? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, in a sense, Naomi has a shame that she embraces as part of her circumstance. R- Ruth has a shame that is, is just part of her genetics. Um, she is a Moabitess, which in the mind of the Israelites means that she is not part of the covenant people of God, which means that she has no right to the blessing or protection of God. And yet, as she comes, uh, the, the, the narrator, and, and, and I, I, w- I want to put the, the sharpest point on it that we can. It's not just that Ruth is a Moabitess. It's that the narrator is putting that right in front. I want you to see her as Ruth the Moabitess. Uh, This is not hiding the fact, it's highlighting the fact, uh, precisely because God is going to show himself faithful to Ruth the Moabitess. Um, And and as we think about this, this again really magnifies the glory and the grace of God, that here is a woman uh, who he has no obligation to. There's no obligation to Ruth whatsoever. In the, in the mindset of these other Israelites. And yet God is going to show the same chesed to her as she has shown to Naomi and to the dead. Um, and so, yes, she's Ruth the Moabitess. In particular, the reason why that's important at the very, very beginning and in these chapters is we need to understand the stigma as something that has to be overcome. Just mm-hmm. like the, the situation with Naomi, she's lost everything she had. That's the conflict that has to be overcome as the plot develops. The same thing is true of Ruth. She is going to have to overcome this incredible stigma uh, that, that really should have plagued her for the rest of her life. And yet, as we're going to see, 
God treats her with incredible kindness, as does Boaz. We're going to see him next time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and reverses, as you mentioned in the introductory episode, reverses every expectation of what should have happened to Ruth. And so, again, just to summarize, Ruth demonstrates a selfless character. Ruth has, Ruth has a stubbornness in the best sense of that word. She stubbornly refuses to abandon Naomi, but also the stigma remains. How is Ruth going to respond to that stigma? And what we're going to see is, is that Ruth is very aware of this. Uh, even in the story, she's going to say to Boaz, why would you show favor to me, a foreigner? Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, Ruth is a Moabitess and God wants us to see it precisely because it's in loving a Moabitess that he shows his grace uh, to an even greater degree. Yeah, excellently put. The uh, The law so far in Deuteronomy has different laws for foreigners. Um, so it, it is a hurdle to overcome. And, and we're going to track as well, listeners, you can have in the back of your mind, as characters are introduced or interact, do they see this as something to be overcome? Do they judge her or Naomi by their past, uh, either sins of action in Naomi or sins of birth, as it were, for Ruth? Or do they see beyond, right? That's something we'll we'll see as well with the character of Boaz. Yeah. Last thing I want to say, Tim, and then I'll, I'll throw it back over to you for to wrap us up. Mm-hmm. But uh, the very last line of chapter one, they arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Again, yeah. uh, back in our overview, I said I like the kind of cheek, the the the, the fun nature of the author. Yeah. This book began with us leaving Bethlehem, the house of bread, at a time of famine. We have now returned at the end of this chapter to Bethlehem at a time of harvest. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we we've in some sense just completed a full circle, but we've lost a few people along the way. We have now reset our characters. They've gone through some heartache, they've gone through some difficult decisions to return, but we're now keyed up to introduce our third and final character next time in the person of Boaz. So Tim, maybe go ahead and uh, can you set that one up and bring us on home? Yes, absolutely. So uh, God is is moving, God is working. And and here's what's interesting, Brian, we're going to pull this thread throughout because I really think there's something here. It's interesting that there are many different blessings and in a sense prayers that are in, invoked or, or brought mm-hmm. to God in this text. And one of them is what we've already read. Naomi said, may each of you find rest in the house of a husband. So that prayer is there. That prayer is there lingering and echoing in the background. Uh, and as we look at the introduction of Boaz, that prayer is going to at least begin to find an answer. Now, here's what I want to argue, and we'll show this throughout, that I really believe prayer itself is a narrative vehicle that we're meant to see in the book of Ruth, because every prayer I'll argue in the book of Ruth is ultimately answered within the book itself, that we see those prayers answered. Ruth is by the end going to find uh, rest in the house of a husband. And ironically, Boaz is going to invoke a blessing next time that he is going to become the answer to, unbeknownst to him, because that's just how cool God is. And then a couple of things real quick that I'll I'll say and then uh, pass it over to you for the ending. Uh, There's a couple of myths here. Like one is uh, the word uh, cling uh, is the same word that's used in in Genesis chapter two, where it says that uh, Adam clung to his wife and he knew her and they were naked and they knew no shame. And this is the reason why a man leaves his father and mother and so on. Uh, Some people look at that and say, well, that means there's erotic overtones somewhere between like Ruth and Naomi. Uh, that, that's 
totally, totally fallacious. The idea that, that a word carries all of its possible meanings in every usage is a logical fallacy. So we, we need not read anything beyond a deep loyalty, a deep love. Uh, we need not read anything physical into that. Um, but also with that, we see in, in Ruth committing herself to Naomi, it's the deepest possible human connection in the sense of I'm devoting myself to you. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely. This is an oath. This is essentially Ruth making a covenant with Naomi in the strongest possible terms. And then I'll, I'll say this, Brian, something that I, I see pastorally, and you probably see as well as in your role as a professor, is that, that sometimes I think people take a view of scripture that is, is too serious. Uh, and mm. here's what I mean. Rather than being able to see humor, rather than being able to delight in sort of say the stubbornness of Ruth and, and you know, Naomi said, all right, I give up, I give up. Uh, some of us have such a pious view of scripture that we don't allow ourselves to enjoy it and to laugh and to look at this and say, this is hilarious, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and so I just want to encourage our listeners, enjoy reading the Bible. Don't, don't think that if something is funny, it's irreverent because that's just not true. God has a sense of humor uh, and so do the people in his text. Uh, and then we see the gumption of Ruth. There's a lot of women with gumption in the Old Testament, aren't there, Brian? You know, oh, absolutely. Uh, Tamar, Jael, Ruth, Rahab. I mean, you, you just think of this. Uh, God is, is not somehow scared of strong-minded women. And uh, so that's just something to think about uh, as, uh, as we come to an end. And we got family intruding, but that's totally fine. Yeah, talk about um, strong-minded women. I've got a couple <laughs> right here. Oh, uh, and I do as well at home. But listeners, I hope you really heard uh dr tim's point there uh there should be humor and joy in reading the text uh and especially a book like ruth is leaning into those elements mm -hmm. so let's not miss that as we go through this story next yep. time we're into chapter two and we're into the most ruthless character of the old testament at least to this point his name is boaz that's a horrible joke i will absolutely reuse it next time though again so get ready for it uh listeners thank you for coming through this journey with us and we look forward to seeing you next time until then stay cool and stay old